people ask me all the time, what's going to happen in the market? And I say, we don't do what the market should do. We do what the market is doing. So therefore, when there's a crisis, we don't sit there and ask ourselves the question like, oh, I don't know if this is a crisis. We just, we, our strategies move. Um, and then we answer the questions later. We figure, oh my gosh, did you see what happened to oil? But during the actual move, it's not about trying to value oil. It's about figuring out what's happening, where's it going, get on the train. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Alan, Don, and I are joined by Catherine Kaminsky, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex Group, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and manage futures more broadly. First off, Katie, it is great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're, you're doing well. Yes, great. Nice to be here. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into all of the different topics we're going to talk about today, I wanted to maybe set the stage for our conversation and give the audience a little bit of background to uh, to your firm. So perhaps you could share just a few highlights as to the type of strategies you focus on and also maybe where the business stands today as we have just entered 2023. Yes. Alpha Simplex is a quantitative investment manager uh, located in Boston We've been around for over 20 years, um, and we focus on a range of quantitative strategies, including managed futures, uh, which we're going to talk about today, but also um, alternative, you know, alternative risk premia and uh, hedge fund replication and other strategies as well. Our our largest strategy is managed futures, and we've been in the trend following space since 2010, um, and we manage a relatively large trend following program that is one of the members of the SG Trend Index. Absolutely. Now, Ellen and I have kind of uh, come up with a number of different topics that we like to discuss with all of the managers. And so what we normally do is just to uh, alternate a little bit in terms of bringing on a topic, and then we can kind of take it from there. So why don't we do as we always do, Ellen, and that is we're going to let you kick off with... Uh, the first topic. Great. Well, um, good to see you, speak to you, uh, Katie. Um, it's interesting, uh, the range of strategies you, you, you run at Alpha Simplex is maybe not very typical. I mean, we've spoken to a number of managers here and it's typically kind of trend and quant macro or maybe trend and short term. But but obviously, you guys are running trend and hedge fund replication and alternative risk premium. So what would you say is the investment philosophy that has brought the, the firm to, to the point of picking those particular strategies to focus on? Yes. So what's interesting about Alva Simplex is we sort of came into the space the other direction. 
most CTAs in the space came in as sort of hedge fund two and twenty type of vehicles where they were seeing um, trendling as like ex exotic alpha in some sense, if you think about it. And so what Alva Simplex did, which is a really exciting way to think about it, is we came into the liquid alternative space wanting to disrupt and to provide good quality alternative liquid alternative strategies to investors in the masses. And so we tend to have the philosophy that we are a best ideas fund. We want to give our best ideas to all investors, and we want to provide returns that are alternative that can help investors with diversification at multiple levels uh, of the investment uh, hemisphere. So what I would say is that we really care a lot about all of our investors. We want to give them the best strategies, and we find ways to, to put our best ideas into everything that we do. And when you say um, kind of bringing it to the masses, so does that mean then, you know, as an offshoot of that, presumably focus on a high capacity strategies as opposed to more more niche strategies? Yes, we are very focused on liquidity in most of our strategies. So thus um, liquid alts, um, strategies that can be um, reached by a larger audience. Um, and then in addition to that, um, if you think about it, when I say that we went backwards is that we started off in the liquid alts space and eventually institutions and others started to realize that they liked what we were doing. So we started to move into the institutional space um, many years ago. And now we sort of work in both spaces, both in the retail um, and also in institutional. And I think that has to do with our idea that we want to do the best we can with everything that we do to all clients. And I know um, Andrew Lowe is obviously a founder of, of Alpha Simplex Group. And he has written his uh, idea about the adaptive uh, markets hypothesis. Um, I mean, can you link that to, to the strategies you run? Is that very relevant in terms of thinking about why the strategy you, you, strategies you run should make sense over time? Yes, the adapted market hypothesis um, was a key part of the philosophy of the, the founding of this firm. And the way we think about things is we think about markets adapting over time. And so what that means is that it's definitely about constantly innovating and changing and finding new ways to deal with different and changing market environments. So from an investment perspective, we're always looking for models that will move and adapt with changing market environments. Um, and that's why trendfilling is one of the best examples of an adaptive strategy. If it's designed properly, a pure trend at its purest form is meant to adapt to changing environments. So hence, it's it's been sort of one of the core of our business. Okay, interesting. And um, I mean, it sounds like managed futures and trend is, is a big part of, of the portfolio. When we've spoken to other managers, you know, there's been this desire to diversify into different types of strategies within the managed futures universe. But it sounds like you've taken the view of sticking to, to kind of that core trend following belief. Yes. So the way I think about it is each investment product has a mandate and our managed futures program has a mandate of pure trend. What it means is that we want to deliver to our clients the purest form of trend in the sense that we don't want to add a bunch of other things. We want to focus on crisis alpha. We want to focus on being able to capture difficult environments, adapting to volatility. And that is really sort of what we want to deliver. We're not trying to maximize sharp ratio. We're trying to maximize the trend experience and make it the most robust and um, consistent with capturing those key uh, global market trends.
Yeah, I mean, so you kind of already dived into um, to the things I wanted to uh, talk to you about, uh, Katie, because one of the things that I have often talked about on the podcast, and I always am delighted to give credit to where credit is due, which is, of course, you when it comes to the term crisis alpha. Uh, so let me be very frank about my, my own experience, because I say to people that I was so excited when I heard the term because it made so much sense and you could go into an IC committee saying, well, we're going to add this uh, you know, crisis alpha strategy. Everybody would know it. But my own personal experience has also been I've had to discuss now with people so many times, what is a crisis? Uh, every time trend following didn't deliver and people thought there was a crisis. But be that as it may, where I want to go with this first and foremost, and you've kind of touched upon it a little bit, so maybe we need to broaden it out, not just purely from your perspective in terms of uh, Alpha Simplex, but but maybe the industry as a whole. Because one of the topics we brought up with people is this paper that came from Cliff Asnes, where he basically says, well... The industry of trend followers have two mandates, right? We want to create absolute returns and we want to create um, returns when equities are down or when there is a crisis. But the other thing he mentioned, I think, is that uh, there's a lot of focus on sharp. And you obviously referenced that to you to, to it just before. So my, my question to you is, do you think the industry as a whole has become too concerned uh, about sharp? Let's start with that. Yes, that's a good question because I do agree with him that there's sort of two mandates and it depends on the investment objective and the preferences of the investor. We have been more in the camp and I think there's several peers of ours as well that pure trend in its purest form and is is the best diversifier over a long run. So that's really about maximizing total portfolio sharp as opposed to maximizing individual strategy sharp. And it's really to depend on the mandate for the following reasons. It depends on which of those matter to the investor. If the investor is thinking about the big picture and actually measuring their success on the big picture, then they want pure trend. And that's what we see with a lot of institutions that come to us and say, we don't want a bunch of other stuff. We want to know exactly what we're what we're adding to our portfolio. And pure trend is one of the few things in very difficult environments that will, does well. So we want to distract to try and improve the individual sharp. But then we also meet investors who come to us and say, I care about P&L returns in a line item way that I'm comparing its apples and oranges. And I'm really sort of seeing this as an individual investment. And that's where you start to see people want to have a more diversified trend approach. And so for us, it's not really a question of, it, it depends on what the investor is looking for. And we have products that are like that as well. And so I think for everyone out there who's looking at the space, they have to ask themselves, th themselves this question. Am I trying to improve the overall sharp ratio or am I trying to have the best sharp ratio for that one individual uh, investment? Okay, I really like that. I like I like the term uh, total portfolio sharp as opposed to individual line item sharp. I really like that. I think we should uh, have much more focus on that. But my follow-up question would be, so how do we have that conversation successfully? Because I find it so hard with dealing with investors for them to get away from the individual line item sharp because they may not even they may not even really know the impact of the specific strategy that it has on the portfolio in terms of the sharp. And of course, as you also know, lots of people have such a small allocation to trend that it doesn't really move the needle on the, on the portfolio sharp anyway. So how do you, and I know you, 
you're, you're not only a, a great strategist and researcher, but you write uh, amazingly. So how does that narrative sound like when, when you talk about or think about that? That's a really good question because in, in all honesty, it's always people will say one thing and sometimes behave differently. So you really have to kind of talk with them. And I think the most successful trend-following investors that look at pure trend are ones that have created a segregated mandate and have sort of labeled it and explained it to their boards or explained it to themselves if it's an individual that this is something that is either risk mitigating or something that's supposed to be there based on my defense mechanism. It's something that will react in difficult environments and it may not work as well in others. And so the challenge is when you talk to investors, they often say that they want to maximize the total sharp, but don't uh, in practice in a bad year, as you know, the phone rings, right? They're calling you and saying, why are you underperforming equities? And that's where we have to tell them the story again. But I think you hit one of the biggest roles of why education and working with their clients is so important because they need to understand the volatility in such a space because really there is a lot of volatility and there's a lot of dispersion. So they need to be prepared for this. Um, it's easy to say that prior, but when that actually happens, it's the understanding, the education uh, that helps them through um, understanding longer-term moves in markets and correlations are not the same as uh, returns. Now, if I understood you correctly, Katie, you mentioned that you kind of cater to both. You you have your flagship, which is probably focused on pure trend, but you have other versions of it that people can um, get if they want something that is maybe a little bit easier to hold, which, by the way, we hear from a lot of managers that they've gone down that route because they say, well, it's no use for them to own trend following if they can't hold it. So that's an argument which we fully appreciate. I'm curious to know if you can talk a little bit about if you start with your pure trend, what kind of stuff do you add to make it more palatable <laughs> and come in the other uh, category where people can hold it a little bit more? What are the what are the the tricks you can sort of put in where you where it changes the characters enough for people to be able to look at it may, maybe more as an individual line item as well? That's a good question. I mean, if you take trend, there's many different directions you can go. Um, starting just even with pure trend, there's things that you can do to diversify that um, investment. So the pure classic liquid, highly liquid pure trend strategy that we talk about, you can expand that by adding more markets, either moving into alternative markets, but then you can also expand that by moving into other strategies. And so other strategies such as carry, uh, roll down, many different ARP strategies, which um, can complement trend, not always negatively correlated, but maybe zero correlation uh, to trend, which creates more of a diversified uh, return stream. The only challenge with that, of course, is it depends on the client. If a client's coming in with a line item view, then basically they might want that diversification to smooth the ride over longer term. But if they're coming into us and saying, look, we have so much equity, we have all of these things that are very classic fundamental approaches, we want trend to be sort of the one odd man out, something different in the portfolio. And so I think it really depends on the objective of the client. And sometimes they don't always know. <laughs> so you have to talk to them and really say, like, you know, what are you trying to do? How are you going to defend this when it's difficult? How are you going to explain when equity markets rally and it doesn't? 
And, and those kind of questions are very important for investors to ask them those questions to figure out how can we get you the right, uh, how can we help you find the right solution? Yeah. Now, before I turn it back to Alan, I do have, of course, one or two follow-up questions on the term crisis alpha that I have to ask you. From memory, I seem to recall that your co-author of your great book, uh, Trend Following with Managed Futures, uh, Alex, um, that he once did a paper where um, he showed that one of the most consistent, if not the most consistent asset class during a crisis period is commodities. So that's just one thing I just want to put out there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But also, when we talk about crisis alpha, do you think that trend following uh, as a strategy, do you think it is just, um, and I don't know what the English word is, but is it just a feature of the strategy that it turns out to generally make money when there is an equity crisis or is there something that managers do or can do specifically in the design of their strategy that will more ensure that it will do well when there is an equity crisis? How do you how do you think of of these things? Sorry, that's a lot. Oh, that's like three on. questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's let's start with like number one. Why don't we go back to the original conception of crisis alpha and at least kind of give some context because I think you're right. People throw terms around. They throw vocabulary around like just for fun. And sometimes if you think about where something actually comes from, it gives you a better idea of why that name is there. So the original story with crisis alpha back after 2008, I was working in the space in Sweden and I was asked a question by one of the big pension funds to explain why managed futures did well during this crisis. Because they said to me, I, I think it's fantastic that it does well during crisis, but if I don't understand why, I don't care. And I always laughed because I was like, oh, this is a this is like a charge. I was a young, you know, fresh academic. Um, so I was ready to go. Um, and Andrew uh, Lowe, who, who we discussed earlier, was my original PhD thesis advisor. And so I was indoctrinated in the adaptive markets hypothesis. So what I was very interested in for Crisis Alpha was really thinking about what is it that makes a strategy succeed during a period of stress? And so the definition of Crisis Alpha is potential opportunities during periods of crisis. So it's a much more generalistic term than just trend. It's associated with trend sometimes, but you'll understand why in a second. So what I started thinking about when I was thinking about um, crisis alpha was, what is it that makes a strategy succeed during stress? Well, there's a couple key features, right? So number one, liquidity. Number two, opportunistic. So being able to you know, find many different things. And number three, no bias. So not having a specific bias that you're stuck with, okay? So if you take those three characteristics, we can walk through them and you can come up with lots of things that actually work as crisis alpha. So liquidity is important because if you have liquid strategies, when things are difficult, you can move, number one. Number two, if you have opportunistic, meaning that you can be long and short or a bunch of different things because every crisis is very unique. So the opportunity set is very different. So let's take an example. During COVID, the best trade was to be short energy and long bonds. During the Ukraine event, guess what? It was the opposite. It was being short bonds and long energies. So you can't predict how difficult the crisis is and where it's going to go. So you have to be opportunistic in some sense, whatever strategy you have. 
And then finally, the bias is important. And I talked a little bit as well about this long short, is that if you have a long bias or a long bias to equities or bonds, which we found out last year, you can be stuck and that you just can't move. I mean, I can't tell you how many conferences I went to last year and I said, how many of you think rates are going up? And every person in the room raised their hands. And then I said, who's short bonds? Raise my hand. Nobody. So what's interesting with that is that those are the three key principles of crisis alpha. Liquidity, opportunistic, and also non-biased. So if you think about that, what happens with trend falling is it just happens to have some of those key characteristics that help it to be more, more adaptable during a period of stress. And what that means is that when you have this crisis, most strategies, people kind of either because they're stuck thinking that things are always going to keep working, that's the bias part, or they're stuck in the wrong asset class, or they can't go short because they or long and they don't have commodities even in their portfolio. That means that they're just stuck in that crisis waiting for it to end. Um, whereas certain strategies, trend volume being one that is potentially able to do that, is able to adapt to what is an unexpected environment. And this is where I have a paradigm I often say about trend, why it kind of fits, is people ask me all the time, what's going to happen in the market? And I say, we don't do what the market should do. We do what the market is doing. So therefore, when there's a crisis, we don't sit there and ask ourselves the question like, oh, I don't know if this is a crisis. We just, we our strategies move. Um, and then we answer the questions later. We figure, oh my gosh, did you see what happened to oil? But during the actual move, it's not about trying to value oil. It's about figuring out what's happening, where's it going, get on the train. Um, and so I think that's where crisis also comes from is this idea of understanding which strategies do well during stress and what are the key characteristics of strategies that help you to be successful during stress. So that's one of the questions. Sorry, that is a long-winded answer. That was just one of them. The, the only other one, first of all, I, I love that. And, and you're now swaying me back in the alpha, uh, crisis alpha camp. So I appreciate that because when you describe it like that, it makes a ton of sense. So, so well done. Secondly, I do want to ask you a little bit about this notion about the commodity, what role they play in a crisis. Um, because I think it is quite interesting. And I think this is one of the other things that we as, as, as a diversified uh, manager bring to the table is access to these markets that a lot of investors will never have uh, access to. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yes, that's a good question. I mean, that's a good point. And I actually want to highlight a paper I wrote a couple of years ago that is one of my favorites that I'll have to recreate at some point. It's called Crisis Alpha Everywhere. Um, I think I published it in 2016 in PI Online. Um, it was just an interesting discussion. And what we did in this paper is we defined crisis in a much more pluralistic manner, where we define crisis as a, a drawdown in any of the four major asset classes. So that could be commodities, currencies, uh, bonds, or um, equities. And what we found is we defined um, a crisis depending on how many markets were in extreme events. And what we showed is that when there were more and more crises, that was an environment where big, big moves, that was environments where trended better. So the more crisis there is, the better uh, the strategy does, which makes a lot of sense but it defined crisis in a much more pluralistic manner. Because to be honest with you, 
the reason why we focus so much on equity crisis is those have been the major crises over the last 20 years. But guess what? Last year, we had a bond crisis and an equity crisis at the same time. And in 2014, we had an energy crisis also. So I think the reason investors are so focused on equities, that's what they hold, right? And they also, you know, most of the major crises that we have all experienced and hurt from and felt difficult times in our investments have been equity focused. So I think there's that lens that kind of tilts everyone to that direction. I think last year might change that because you're seeing um, an environment where bond crisis has come up. And that has been very rarely the case. And I actually have an interesting paper we'll have to talk about later on this as well. But um, so the way to think about the commodities part of it that you asked in the beginning is, of course, I mean, think about this concept of opportunistic. So having those extra levers within your portfolio, aka things like currencies and commodities last year, in addition to equities and bonds, allowed you to capture that massive rally in the dollar. It allowed you to capture that massive rally in um, in energy and metals that we saw. So I think the key thing is alternatives are meant to add alternative sources of opportunity to your investment set, diversification. And a key component of being able to capture these opportunities during stress is having more tools in your toolkit, aka more asset classes. Um, and that's why I'm not surprised. I mean, I haven't seen Alex's paper. I'll have to ask him. But um, basically, it means like it's not surprising to me that commodities plays a key role, but fixed income has played a key role too. Um, even equity shorts from time to time. In 2008, the equity shorts helped. They didn't help in COVID, let me tell you that, but they did help in some periods. And so that's why this idea of opportunistic is important because you kind of link back to during crisis, you got to have all your hands on deck. You're going to, what happens is going to be very different depending on what is driving the crisis. And commodities are sort of a key asset class that a lot of investors have forgotten about because they had several lost decades of returns. So that, that provides new opportunities is how I would frame it. So I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about crisis alpha. How much then does that inform that that this is in your mind, the importance of the, the program having that crisis alpha characteristic in terms of then the development of the program and specifically then in relation to a few factors. One, speed of system. Um, is it better to be faster to have a greater uh, likelihood of, of delivering performance in, in a crisis. That's one thing. Secondly, there's a topic that comes up frequently here is, is vol sizing or not. And the argument of the people who don't like the vol size is often that you will get better skew in these kind of crisis periods because you're not reducing positions that are working. And then more generally kind of risk variation, allowing the vol of the program across the whole portfolio to be higher in, in those risk uh, periods. And I suppose I, I wanted to specifically think about you know, we, we say managed futures and trend following can have crisis alpha, but it's not a guarantee we have to, you know, because we, February 2018 is, is, is a good example of a risk reversal and a big down month for, for managed futures. And obviously it could have been a lot worse if that equity reversal had kept going. So to protect against that kind of those reversals, 
you know, how, how important is, the, is that kind of crisis alpha consideration in, in terms of uh, th those particular aspects of developing a trend program? Oh yeah, that's let's let's talk about building a program first. So, and the philosophy of pure trend and and crisis alpha. If you look at this problem from my perspective, um, thinking about crisis alpha, those three key characteristics: liquidity, opportunistic, reactivity, and no bias. You need to spend a lot of time thinking about what is the right strategy for clients that are looking for that potential reaction. So you hit on several of them that are very important. The first I'll talk about is speed. So having a program that's able to adapt quickly to changing market environments is very crucial. So having a sizable enough allocation to short-term uh, windows and short-term approaches. Now, some things that you can do that we think about as well is you can also have nonlinear uh, approaches. So you want your strategy. So let's put this in simple terms. You want your strategy to move when it's necessary, but you also don't want it to move when it's not necessary. So how do you balance that reactivity with capturing sort of the, the long-term average alpha or you know potential for trend? And that requires some finesse in terms of thinking about adding enough short-term strategies and also adding strategies that can change, that can adapt to market environments and capture a faster approach. And so we saw this. Let me give you an example. Um, if you look at COVID, that was a great way to think about that. Things moved super quickly. It was unbelievable. I mean, I'm sure you guys all felt the same. We wrote a paper where we studied this after the fact called um, the Corona crisis, what ha what's the same, what's different. And we highlighted a couple of key attributes. One of those was speed. The other was pure trend versus uh, diversified trend. Um, which were the key uh, aspects. And we also looked a little bit at volatility and volatility management as well. And so there are a couple of key things. If you're thinking about a pure trend strategy, one of the key components is to size your positions as a function of opportunity sets, which is very consistent with time-bearing volatility, which means that you want your volatility of your program to be conviction-scaled, aka when the opportunities are bigger, you want to take more risk, when the opportunities are worse, you want to consolidate. Um, and so if you all target a strategy like that, you're actually adding mean reversion to the approach. Because basically, if your signals are strong and you want the same risk, you lever down. And then when your signals are weak, you lever up. So if you're a pure trend follower, you believe in volatility um, flexibility within reason, of course, because there's always an art to doing this. It's not just about you know wild volatility. It's really about managing sort of the adjustments as a function of your signal strength. So that type of strategy works very well in an environment like last year, where you had some very big trends that then went very volatile at the end. So you end up, what happens is you see the signals growing, you increase your positions. As you see volatility spike, eventually that sort of normalizes and, and captures the main part of the trend. So you want to capture the center of the trend and be able to at least slowly realize that that trend is dissolving um, after the volatility at the top becomes higher. So I think for us, going back to your question, finding ways to incorporate speed without losing too much of the cost, because faster isn't faster signals do not work as well in trend, but they're very important to have a strategic allocation to them. 
Secondly, allowing your volatility to fluctuate, but managing it. And thirdly, we also talked about pure trend versus diversified trend. Having a pure trend approach is going to react the most consistently with very extreme moves. And that's exactly what we saw during COVID. Those are the three characteristics that differentiated one manager from another in terms of how they, which ones were able to actually adjust to the big trends that we saw happen so quickly. And I think it was only a little bit over a month, which is felt like five months, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. The, so the, the other um, idea that comes into the mix when people think about this whole debate as well uh, is the idea of capping the equity beta uh, so that you don't get caught with a large equity uh, beta at the turning point, such as in a February 18 uh, scenario. What's your thoughts on that as part of the mix in terms of uh, the crisis alpha discussion? So this is also a good question because it's a trade-off, right? So whenever you tie, um, if you take a bunch of people who are running on a team, have you ever watched somebody play that sack race where they, they have to have their legs in the sack? With any strategy, there's always a trade-off to sort of putting constraints. So you can't run as fast when you're sort of puts in a potato bag. So there's a trade-off between the constraints of constraining your portfolio so it can be as opportunistic, but the advantage of understanding the real objective of the client. So this is where it goes back always to the objective of the client. If a client is looking at trend following as crisis alpha specifically to equities only, and they're very direct and clear about it, there are many ways where you can think about making this particular approach a palpable for them. For them. So we have many different solutions that we've studied and designed in this area um, where you make what I would call a trend system equity aware. So an equity aware trend system is a system that either avoids equity to some degree or even filters equity signals to some degree to kind of prepare it for those difficult environments for equities. Now, when you look over time, what's interesting is you end up with a lower sharp ratio on average for the strategy, but it can occasionally have a little bit more punch when there is an equity type crisis move. So when we design these strategies, we think about the concept that there's a volatility mismatch between equities and trend. So trend and us systematic managers, we manage vol, right? So we're always looking at vol and we're sort of adjusting. So when vol goes up, what do we do? Delever. Whereas equity strategies and most equity investments that people have, have widely time varying volatility. So when equity wall goes up and we delever, we're actually now mismatched in our portfolios. So if you really, really care about the global optimal solution, you actually might want an equity aware strategy. The other challenge with that too, though, is now your new benchmark is how do you perform compared to other trend strategies? because now you've also created some deviation from trend as a whole, and you've tied the strategy a little bit in terms of its ability to adapt to equity markets as one of the four key asset classes. So these are small trade-offs, but they do create return dispersion. Um, and we actually monitor how they compare and in certain years. Uh, when equity is a positive contributor, like 2021, those strategies underperform. But in a year where there's a big equity crisis, sometimes they're less exposed and they can perform a little better. So it's really sort of which return stream are you looking for and what is your objective as an investor? 
Just um, a general question. We don't want to kill Crisis Alpha completely, <laughs> beat it to death here. But I suppose, there, do you think it is, you know, obviously you coined a phrase, so you must think it's a good thing. But is there a risk with over-egging the Crisis Alpha characteristic, do you think, in the, in the eyes of, an, of the investor from the perspective of, obviously, when you get a crisis move, we don't know what the shape of that move is. We could have, it could be any given crisis, you could have lots of reversals in lots of different markets from currencies to commodities. So do you think, can people get too enamored with the crisis alpha concept uh, to the detriment of, 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 of kind of being aware of uh, the scope for reversals in a, in, a, in, a, in a crisis? Yeah, this is why this is a great question. I'm so glad to talk about this with you guys, because if you talk to me, somebody who kind of came up with this concept of crisis alpha, I don't see, uh, I see the two things as separate, right? So I see crisis alpha as this thing that we all want, right? I mean, we all want positive returns during stress, whatever stress it is, but we're trying to find what strategies might get it and when, and what type of crisis can we capture? And so when you have that segregation, then it's very clear. And what you're pointing out is the challenge is people love to label stuff. So they think, okay, this is crisis alpha. And then they give you a call because they're like, isn't this a crisis? I'm sure this is a crisis, Katie. Why, did, why didn't you have positive returns? So that's where the challenge comes. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about this as well. Um, back in 2018, we did a lot of backpedaling. We did a lot of talking about crisis alpha because everyone says, oh my gosh, there's a crisis. It hurt me. I'm upset. Where are you? you did, you're down. What's happening? The trend was down. So um what was interesting then, we wrote a paper called Crisis or Correction, because we're trying to also explain, well, you know, not all events where returns are down are crises, there's crisis and there's correction. And in this year, we had a ton of corrections, not crises. And the reason um, this was exciting to me is I had one particular CIO of a consulting firm, and he came to me and he said, these are the slides. I showed them to the board, <laughs> and it's when I could give somebody a new term Suddenly, like they understood. So I said, oh, okay, this is a success. That's why our field is so fun because education is important and understanding when something works, when it doesn't, understanding the segregation between crisis alpha and trend following is very important because they're not the same. Trend just happens to be one of those strategies that sometimes captures crisis alpha. But guess what? There are others too. And sometimes cash can give you um, crisis alpha, right? I mean, just having money and being liquid during a you know something difficult. I always thought about the the example of Warren Buffett, right? He did super well during the global financial crisis. Did he time it? Did he do trend falling? No, 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 no. He just had cash, and so he went in when things were undervalued. So, I think the point is, crisis alpha is a term that is segregated from trend, but trend is a strategy that sometimes captures it. So if you can explain that to investors, I think they they start to think about it differently. And some of the pensions that we talk to, that's exactly what they've done. They, they've created buckets of investments that they think might do well in stress. They like to call them risk mitigating, but th which I, I'm totally okay. I think that's a great word. They're looking for stuff that's going to do well in difficult times. And that is a bunch of different things. And they tend to like trend but they like other things as well. So I think that's where sort of the distinction is. Very good. Um, before we move on to research, Niels, did you want to come back in on this or any 
other follow-ups? Uh, no, I don't think I want to do more on that, but I can squeeze in a, a maybe a little a smaller topic, uh, and then you can dive into to more research, uh, and, and that is, uh, you mentioned yourself, Katie, that CTA replication. I don't know, I didn't fully understand whether that's another thing you do or whether you look at what you do generally in the bigger fund as a kind of CTA replication, but be that as it may, uh, it's been around for a while, it has had new life uh, blown into it last year because there is now a replicator of the SOCGEN CTA index that grew a lot. And now there's a replicator of that replicator that even adds twice the leverage. So that's obviously, that you know, what could possibly go wrong with that, I'm, I'm thinking. But I'd love to hear your view because if you're doing quote-unquote CTA replication, I'm sure you're not doing it as a linear regression of trying to figure out what people's positions are. So... Can you talk about, from your point of view, the pros and the cons a little bit about uh, different types of CTA replication and kind of where you sit on on this topic? Oh, that's a great topic for me because um, we've been doing replication of multiple forms within our firm for quite some time. I mean, we launched one of the original hedge fund replication strategies um, at the onset of the buzz about liquid alt. So um, and we run hedge fund replication as well as CTA replication strategies in um, another program, not our managed futures program. And we do believe that there are some positive characteristics to capturing some of the key dynamics of certain strategies um, in a simple and pure form. Um, but the one thing I want to highlight here is that a lot of people in our space, they really get confused by this concept of correlation. So it's very, very easy to replicate correlation to trend following, correlation to hedge funds. It's not always as easy to replicate exact returns. And so people will get very excited because they say, oh, I can, I can do 90% correlation. Oh my gosh, I replicated it. And, and there's even books out there of, of friends of mine and people I know who said, who published like, I can replicate CTAs. And I agree, you can, you can but at the end of the day, the devil is always in the details. And when we talk to institutions and, 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 and even retail investors, there's a difference between a replicator and it has a role in certain environments. And there's a, a diversified program that has multiple 90 markets. Um, and that's why you see the ecosystem developing, that you have just a range of products. They have different goals, different audiences. And I think that's a good sign because it means that we have this ecosystem. We have sort of the, you know, the the trend strategies that are trying to move into more exotic alpha and all this type of stuff in exotic markets, all the way down to the other end of the spectrum, which is our, let's just get sort of some of the key macro exposures of trend because it's easy to use an ETF and let's do it. And so we don't have a view that one is right and one is wrong. We believe that the ecosystem is diverse and that those clients or investors that want pure trend or non-pure trend can be different. The same with those that want an ETF. Um, because let's think about it. A lot of people use ETFs, right, today. And a lot of in the retail space like the idea of an ETF and they find it's easy to trade and include. So it's a way for trend to get into someone's program who may not use a mutual fund. Um, and so I think that's an exciting area, but I think there's an ecosystem. <laughs> um, and we believe that they have different goals. So the one thing you're going to notice with an ETF versus a regular trend program is the number of markets, right? 
um, and daily rebalancing and sort of exposure. So in a very diverse trend program, you're going to see 90 to 100 markets. You're going to get exposure to sort of the Indian rupee or Singapore dollar and, you know, many different things, um, wheat, corn, coffee, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, whereas when you're talking about an ETF, you are going to capture some of the core macro exposures, and that's going to be the focus. It's going to be much more concentrated, right? So it's going to be dollar versus euro. It's going to be um, U.S. focus often as well. So the nuance may not be there, but the big picture could still be there. So I think that's how I see it is it really depends on the investor and what they want and what they're looking for. Some are looking for sort of a wide global exposure in an easy package. Others are looking for a diversified set. And so I think last year was a good example for the ETF world because the trends were very macro. And so big macro trends work very well some of the time, and sometimes the idiosyncratic trends are, are helpful. So I think that's where, actually there's diversification across those two as well, so you can see. So I see it as an ecosystem, and I think it's exciting that we have such a wide range of different things that we can do and cater to such a wide range of different trend-following investors. It really was just to get a sense on, on research uh, in from the perspective of a pure trend follower. Obviously, one of the things that's been very topical in the last while has been machine learning. And, you know, going back a few years, everybody was really excited about the potential for, for machine learning when applied to financial markets. And maybe that excitement has waned a little bit. But, um, you know, you've mentioned the importance of adaptability and, and machine learning could potentially give you that, being able to pick up on shifts in markets. What, what's been the Alpha Simplex experience uh, in terms of success with machine learning? And then I guess more generally, um, you know, for, for, for the benefit of an outsider thinking about trend, if, if you're a pure trend follower and the, st the system is fairly stable, um, there's probably a sense that not a whole lot changes over time. What are the big things that you can focus on as a researcher that can add value in a, in a, in a fairly stable, pure trend system? Yes. Yeah, so talking about machine learning first, uh, machine learning is something we've been applying for many years in our program, and it has been a very positive contribution within our program. But we used machine learning with a sense of skepticism in the sense so we prefer simple uh, machine learning models and approaches that are interpretable. So we prefer things that allow us to create a nonlinear response to trends. That's the best way I like to think about it is that machine learning is, what is trend, right? Trend is, you have a filter, when things go up, how much, could, how much position should you take? And so what machine learning allows us to do is to have a more nonlinear filter instead of a linear response curve to, um, to markets and allows us to react at a speed that's that, that can be either faster or slower in different environments. And so that's the way we think about machine learning. We think about it as another tool to allow us to be a little more precise in how we can react to different market moves by learning with past data and different techniques. And this is exciting because we have seen that machine learning has helped us um, capture trends a little faster from time to time and even stay slower from time to time um, in different markets. Um, and the way to think about that is, you know, if you just take a very simple trend system, we talked about replication, right? You can get a, a pretty good representation of trend. 
But if you want to do just a little bit better on the margin to something that's a well-known strategy, you have to really be thoughtful about how could I be a little bit faster, a little slower? How could I react in a slightly different way that kind of tilts my system to uh, better perform in trend environments? And that is both at the signal level and going to your next question, also at the risk management level. So having sort of a system that is adjusting its volatility in a way that captures opportunity sets um, in a concerted, measured, and organized fashion, but with attention to detail on across the board. So I think that's where, going back to what you were asking me about replication, is devil is always in the details for these type of strategies, is that what makes a very, very sophisticated trend strategy is something that really sort of pays attention to all of those factors and how they integrate to each other. And uh, thinks about some of the non-linearities and some of the complexities of these type of systems. Interesting. And um, is that, I mean, can you quantify then, like, would you be able to say, can you quantify what's the benefit of a kind of a sophisticated trend follower or, or over a more simple uh, trend following system? Is, is it a, what, what kind of order of magnitude do you expect to be able to achieve with, with kind of th those kind of more sophisticated improvements? I mean, remember, these strategies are not high sharp, but if you can add 0.1 sharp or if you can increase your sharp by a small amount, over a long run, it shows, right? So um, that's where the point of a sophisticated product is still desirable to institutions who have very long windows because they they get it. They understand that one year or another, it's not going to be noticeable. But if you actually are paying attention and sort of concerted effort uh, to really sort of take as much extra information and, and process it in, a, in a, a good way, that you over a longer time horizons will outperform. And so I think that's where the sophisticated group of investors are really focused on that and see the value of having a diversified program or having a more complex program that like the the type of um, programs you see out there. Yeah, no, I wanted to, um, we may have some other topics we want to discuss, but we certainly also wanted to make space for some of the topics that you mentioned, uh, Katie, and I will in the show notes have a link to uh, the page where all of your insights uh, are published. But you mentioned one thing in, in, in our conversation already, um, which is something you're working on, so I don't think it's even published yet. I don't know if you want to start with that and, and give us a little bit of a teaser for what's coming. Yes. Thank you, Niels. You who know me for quite some, some time, also Alan as well, I'm a big fan of CTA style factors um, and factors that help us to understand tilts in trend-following systems. So the first time I wrote about these style factors was in my book in 2014, we talked about the CTA style factors, this is in chapter 13. And there, what we were trying to do is look at different tilts that people might choose within their systems. One was um, speed, another was equity bias, and the third one was um, size. So small markets versus big markets. And so since then, of course, I've expanded my network of many different style factors that we study, and we've written about them a lot at Alva Simplex. Some We designed um, a correlation factor. We also have a, a co-movement factor um, and several other factors that we study. And so this year, a new factor came into the, into the play, which is very exciting. And that factor is the long equity, long bond bias factor. And so the reason this is important is so many people have, you know, if you look at trend falling over time, we talked about tying 
you know, having running with a, your leg in a sack. It's the same thing, equity bias, because equities tend to go up. We studied equity bias in systems to understand if strategies have a long bias to equities. And the reason this mattered is during crisis, that's bad. So you want to know if a strategy has an equity long bias, if you're thinking about adding it, because you already have equity long bias. So it's one thing to kind of measure when you look at a trend program. Then this year, with the miraculous move in bonds, um, many people don't know that it's been 40 years since bonds really had sort of a serious bear market. And we actually wrote another paper called The Short on Shorting Bonds. We can talk about that later, where we looked at sort of trend signals in fixed income over different horizons. What you find is over the last 40 years, long signals are always better. So on average, it never paid to be short bonds. Hence, the advent of an idea of this long bond bias factor. Um, and the truth is, long bond bias didn't matter for the last 20 or 30 years because you actually wanted to have it um, in general. But when you got to this last year where fixed incomes volatility doubled and we saw the real downside in fixed income, if you have a long bias to bonds, it would have been good for you, but it would have really hurt this year. And so what we did was we actually looked at, and this paper is very interesting, um, we looked at this long bond bias factor and we examined ways, um, examined the impact of a long bond bias factor uh, during 2022, but we also examined how is it possible that a systematic manager who's supposed to be unbiased has long bond, has, has this bias. And there's three ways. One is you can easily add constraints and they can even be asymmetric constraints. Like I won't take a position on the short side more than X, Y, Z. Um, another is that you could add non-trend. We found that didn't explain it. So you could have lots of strategies that are different that explain that. We found that actually didn't explain the bias. So that wasn't an issue. And then finally, we also examined machine learning. It turns out that if you have machine learning models, and we showed a simple example um, in some of our work that it's very easy to learn a long bond bias in data, just like it is easy to learn a long bond bias in equities. So actually the, the advantage of having uh, machine learning is that you learn these good patterns, but when the patterns change, the question is, are your machine learning models adaptable enough to actually see that the, there's a change in the data? And so we found that this is an interesting year to talk about that because most of us haven't thought about long bond bias but it's very clear once it once this actually happened that we saw bonds down for a year that gives us a great time to talk about that and talk about long bond bias. And is that something that you were finding was then prevalent across the industry? Yes. Yeah, so in this research, what we found was that there was a huge range in, in exposure to short bonds last year. And if you think about a pure trend follower, you can kind of map what the desired uh, positioning would be for a very simple, we talked about replication, the simple trend system. And we were finding that there were two camps. There were some managers that had very large short exposure, and there are some that had very muted uh, short exposure. And that kind of had us scratching our heads like, wow, this is a really big trend. Like, why is there only a half a position and so five of the managers in this set of data that we looked at? And so we started asking ourselves the question, like, what caused somebody to do that? 
you know, and uh, let's think about it ourselves. Do we have this bias? Could we think about it? And so we started spending a lot of time talking to clients about those positioning because our positioning was very much consistent with the trend, very short bonds. And a, there was such a diverse group. There were some that were very short and some that weren't quite so much. And that made us question, is it the pure trend versus non-pure trend? Is it, you know, just constraints? Could there be an explanation for this? So we designed this uh, this asymmetric uh, long bond bias factor, and we found that that could explain um, a good portion of the relative performance um, last year, um, just because last year was really massive. Um, the best trend last year was short bonds. Energies was good, so was the dollar, but um, it was really the year of the short bond trade. Yeah. Staying, staying with bonds, I remember a few years ago that... Um at least one, maybe two um, shorter term managers came out suggesting that trend followers basically made all their money in bonds. And once the interest rates would start to go up, they would not make any money from that. Um, I think 2022 probably disproved that. But but my question is, do we need to um, revisit that argument again? Or do you think uh, that argument has, has been put to rest? So I love that argument because it was basically that people would say, you only make money in you know long bonds. And I, I just said, you know what the greatest trend for the last 40 years is? Long bonds. So what you're saying is we're following a trend and that's what, <laughs> so I was confused. Like how, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, I said, what's, and I always said, what's going to be interesting is when that trend is over, what happens next? And that's why looking at bond bias actually matters now more than before, because now when we see this massive opportunity in the other direction, in a direction that's very uncomfortable for a lot of investors, are trend-following strategies following those? And if so, if they are pure trend, they should be. They shouldn't have a bias long or short to either asset class. And that's why it was such an interesting year to talk about bond bias uh, for me, and also to see sort of how systems reacted. And I think the interesting part for me is that if you take a wide range of different trend models with multiple different signal response functions, most of them were very short bonds. So that's why I was scratching my head because a pure trend strategy should follow the trend and it is short bonds and short bonds in spades last year. And that's where it's sort of an interesting environment for us um, as pure trend that shows the differentiation between a pure trend and, and an approach that doesn't uh, that adds other things or tries to do different things or focuses on sharp <laughs> because sharp would have been higher if you had a long bond bias prior to this year, as an example. True. And the final thing it also showed, I think, last year was that if you uh, look at some of the attributions and you look at some of the short-term interest rates, which were really difficult to say, um, impossible to trade for a few years when they were basically pegged at zero or minus something. Um, but where trend follows, we have this belief, well, we shouldn't just give up on a market just because it doesn't perform for a period of time. And of course, last year, we got the payoff because a lot of the profits came from these you know, short positions in the short-term interest rate uh, space uh, for sure. So another another lessons, uh, lesson that we were reminded of. The final topic I wanted to bring up of, of the ones you um, came with, Katie, and as I said, I'll link to the to all of these articles uh, in the show notes, and then Ellen and I will have some some uh, final topics. But it's it's a topic that actually comes up a lot, and we've discussed it on the podcast. Um, and I think people, 
I think people are aware of this more so than 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 before, and that is the world has become a very uncertain place. I don't think you can, you know, uh, you're not aware of all of that uh, uncertainty. So uh, I think you've written about uncertainty in relation to managed futures trend following. If if I remember correctly, um, can you share some some thoughts on that? Yeah, we have a great paper that we published last year called "Managed Futures and Macro Uncertainty." Um, and this was a fun one because I, if I kind of synop, you know, create a synopsis of that paper, the one thing I like to say is managed futures and trend following is long macro uncertainty. Um, and so what that means is that we like it. Anytime there's stuff that's really difficult or there's change and the world is sort of in flux, that's actually a very good environment for us because it means things move, things change, and unexpected stuff happens. Um, and then in this paper, what we tried to do is examine different inflationary environments, uh, different macro environments. We looked at low and high macro uncertainty. We looked at rising or falling macro uncertainty. And of course, we find that high macro uncertainty and rising macro uncertainty is the most exciting for the strategy. But we also looked at how other asset classes perform during these periods. And I think the key message that we were thinking about with this research and this discussion was this idea that when there is macro uncertainty, when things are changing, you don't know how some of the core asset classes that you invest in are going to move and change. And so it is actually very important to find strategies that like it because most asset classes don't. I mean, let's take the example of bonds and commodities. People have forgotten about commodities because commodities struggle in a low inflation environment. In a higher inflation environment, suddenly they become very interesting. On the other hand, bonds, which love low inflationary environments, and we've seen it, struggle in a higher inflation environment and a rising rate environment. So really sort of some of the things that your tried and true investments get in trouble when there's macro uncertainty, when things change. And so you want to think about what kind of strategies and approaches and which asset classes are going to be the most amenable to um, positive return contribution and diversification uh, during a changing macro environment. And so there's another buzzword <laughs> instead of instead of crisis alpha. I like that view because crisis is macro uncertainty. So they're kind of similar, right? But macro uncertainty is a little broader way of defining it. Times where things are very, very uncertain. Crisis is one of those times. Um, but as a broader tool, Macro uncertainty is probably a way that you can think about trend following likes that type of environment as well. It kind of makes it a little bit more pluralistic instead of just equity focused. And I think to some extent last year was a little bit of an example of that because it didn't feel like was there was a massive crisis in equities. It was quite orderly sell-off. We know that obviously volatility strategies didn't work because there were no spikes in, in volatility. So so you're absolutely right. It's It's another term we need to... To, to talk about. Maybe maybe to follow up on that, um, I mean, it sounds intuitively appealing. Taking the other side of it, maybe playing devil's advocate, um, when do we ever not have macro uncertainty, you might say? Um, and maybe the more general point is, you know, trend in a multi-asset portfolio or allocating to trend, you know, the holy grail is, is around the timing and, you know, nobody's been able to crack that one yet. But when you're dealing with investors, is there anything you can give them to say, well, in these types of environments, you obviously will expect trend not to perform as well. And 
yeah, and he, and he, uh, if you were looking for some potential signposts to say, okay, maybe the environment mightn't be getting as favorable for trend, what would you be looking for um, uh, as, as possible kind of signposts for that? I think anytime you have change and stress, it, it's a good environment for us. And I think 2020 was a perfect, it basically changed the world. Like everything is changed now from where it was before. And so I think what's interesting is most investors are constantly looking at how we can get back to where we were before. And you and I all know uh, that that never happens. And whenever there is a transition, that's a period that's very interesting because these transitions are stressful and you don't know how things are going to react. And I think in actually in my book with Alex, we um, we looked at inflation over 800 years of data. And we were also looking at trend following and just thinking about trend following as a philosophy, right? So buying things that are going up as things move over time, more as a philosophical question than sort of a, a strategy question. But we also did study inflation. And what I never forgot was there's a very clear pattern. In high inflation or rising inflation, the strategies are tend to do better. And this is very, very simple. When things move a lot, when things are inflating, there's going to be overinflation and underinflation. And then also when there's a rising inflation, so things are moving at a much faster pace in terms of their, their rate of change. So whenever there's inflation is just a good proxy for things changing a lot, uh, high macro uncertainty. And so in an environment where you have high inflation or even changes in inflation, like deflation can even be interesting because you end up in a situation where change and change is generally difficult, and it takes time to understand uh, the ramifications of change. So I think for us, understanding trend falling is a strategy that does well when there's a lot of change, when things are difficult. Fair enough. So more stability of inflation, which is what we had, obviously, in the last decade is, is the obvious uh, environment that would be more difficult. I mean... Honestly, the last few decades, all you had to do was buy equities, buy a 60-40, and everything was fabulous. And I think that's what's scary for a lot of investors today is that was a pretty good way to go about things, right? I mean, if you could just buy the 60-40 and do really well, that that's nice because a lot of investors really profited from that environment. The challenge is now they don't know what to do. Because a year like last year has left a lot of people scratching their heads. Where are my bonds? Should I hold bonds? Wait, oh, look at the yield curve. Wait, I get 3.5% for the 10-year and 45 for three months. What does this mean? Right? So I think it's it's a harder world right now that we're in. And difficulty is is creates opportunity. Yeah, no, I, uh, I wanted to, uh, and we do this with, with everyone. It's a little bit of a trick question, but it's not really a trick question. And that is, I'd love to hear what the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most. Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it goes back to what you said when people say it's going to work in crisis. I hate that because it means that they kind of made it, the narrative too simple. So that's what makes me nervous is when people count on it as a hedge that's when I kind of react. I say, well, they say, oh, it's a hedge for equities. I say, you know, it's not really a hedge. It's a tool that might help you. So I think that word a hedge or sort of protection, um, that sounds too promising to me. And so I think that's where 
I like to think about things as a tool in your toolkit, something that might be able to help you that's different, um, something that has a philosophically different view. And that's why when I talk to, especially when I speak to retail investors, one of the things I love to say to them is that example of we do what markets are doing, not what they should do. And most investors sit around thinking about what the value of the S&P is. They try and find the level. We don't do that. We're just trying to figure out where markets are going and move with them as information is coming in. And that means that we're going to react very differently to environments, which is diversification. So it's philosophical diversification. Um, and when we see things that are uncomfortable, we don't ask those questions and we don't have to readjust all of our prior assumptions. And so that makes us just philosophically different. And I think that's the way I like to think about it is not thinking about I'm putting this in because it's a guarantee or I don't like that. Um, I don't like the word hedge. I don't like the word protection. Um, I don't like promises with things that have a lot of risk. I think I'm more into thinking about a tool, seeing investments as a tool in a toolkit. Yeah, no, I like the fact that you chose that, Katie, and also like the fact that you kind of touched upon something which I don't know if there's written enough about this. This is maybe something for you, Katie, to do. And that is the benefit of the diversification of investment process that we bring. We often talk about diversification in terms of return streams, but actually the investment process is really what is also part of that power that we can bring to a portfolio, not just the markets, not just the the, re the returns, but just the whole process. But that will leave for next time we have you back once you've written that paper, Katie. I do want to end up with uh, my final question, and that is just simply... What are you most excited about as you look into 2023? And maybe also if there's any concerns that you have uh, on, on, on the radar. So the things I'm the most excited about are that the world has changed and that inflation is higher and that tactical strategies and tactical investments might have a chance to be interesting for the next few years. It's been a very challenging time uh, with globalization and sort of everything kind of harmoniously working. It's been a great time to live, but I think for an investor and for investing, um, it has been uh, less exciting. And so since 2020, the world has changed and there's opportunities. And so I think as a trend follower, what I'm excited about is what are the next trends and what potential um, areas are we going to find interesting opportunities? I think it's exciting that commodities are definitely something that people are following and thinking about. Um, you've also seen currencies being an in important trend recently, which is also diversification. Um, and then just the fact that we've seen a we're in a rising rate environment, and rising rate environments provide a very very different opportunity set. And I think that's exciting. As as one last point, I kind of plugged that one paper that I really like, the short and shorting bonds. We just highlight the results to give people an idea. During rising rain environments, short signals worked a lot of the time, especially in inverted yield curves. And we already in an inverted yield curve environment. So I think we're going to see some really interesting patterns of opportunities that haven't worked for a long time, which hence it's going to be an interesting world to invest in. Couldn't agree more. What a great way to uh, wrap up our conversation today. Um, it's been fascinating as always. Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast again and sharing your thoughts and your insights with us. We hope, of course, that we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. 
And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on the website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.